Today's episode of Great Minds is brought to you by TiVo. TiVo knows things are far from normal. The last few months, TiVo's helped me rediscover and reconnect with shows I had long forgotten about. Thanks to TiVo, I've watched Mad Men. Boy, what a great series that is, and I never would have found it without TiVo. So if you're thinking about where and how you can promote your shows and movies to millions of highly engaged U.S. households, think TiVo. There's no better way to reach your audience and find out what they're searching for than TiVo. Their suite of offerings drives viewers directly to your programming. From in-guide ad banner placements to content-rich native offerings, find out how to make the most of your programming promotions by emailing TiVo at getconnectedattivo.com. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I remember it so well where, you know, I was like, hello, hi, Susie, hi, it's LD. I was like, oh, hi, Lyle, what's up? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is the incredible Emilio Castillo. He is uh, best known as the founder of Tower of Power. He's also a dad and a grandfather. Two grandkids, Emilio? I have two, yes. Two, fabulous. So I'd like to start in uh, an unusual place, and I want to go back to a song from 1966 by the Gotham City Crime Fighters, Who Stole the Batmobile? What comes to mind when you hear that, Emilio? Uh, well, I was a 16-year-old kid. I had a band called The Extension Five. And uh, there was a, actually a topless nightclub in Sunnyvale that had teen clubs on the weekends. So during the afternoon on the weekends, they had teen dances. And we went down there to audition. My mother uh, was the manager along with uh, Rocco's mother, and they drove us down there. And we auditioned wearing our uh, blue sharkskin bolero suits with the ruffle shirts and the um, you know fancy bow ties. And there were these two uh, promoters there, Jerry Dops and Sidney Ralstein, and uh, they they said we have an idea at the time. The Batman show was just about to come out, and it was the biggest thing. Everybody was so excited about it, you know. Um, and they said, this is also the time when bands used to dress up in outfits. So there was Paul Revere and the Raiders, and Peter Wheaton the Breadmen, and the Dutch Masters, and they wore these, you know, outfits when they played. The Young Rascals, even when they started, you know. They dressed like the dead-end kids, you know. And uh, this guy said, you guys are going to be Batman and the Robins. And my mother said, wow, you know, and she started sewing. They made us some costumes, and uh, 
had a bat cave over the drums and some computer looking things in front of my organ. And they sent a letter to the Batman show and said, you must have this incredible band, Batman and the Robins, on your TV show when you debut. And they immediately got a legal letter back saying cease and desist. <laughs> and this guy, uh, um, uh, Sidney Ralston, he did not miss a step. He said, we'll call ourselves the Gotham City Crime Fighters. <laughs> And uh, within uh, a week, we were booked at the Leamington Hotel at this big dance, big popular dance where all the really popular bands of the day played. And we sold it out. They advertised it. Don't miss the hottest new band, Gotham City Crime Fighters, with their $50,000 light show. And all we had were these boxes with perforated plastic in the front and Christmas tree lights in behind it, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, we had our 15 minutes of fame for about three months. And uh, during that time, they took us in a recording studio, which was um, our first time ever. And we recorded this song called Who Stole the Batmobile? And on the flip side, a song called That's Life. Uh, not the famous That's Life by Frank Sinatra, but our own um, insipid version of the song. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. And Detroit, I know you were there only until you were about 11, but that was the beginning or sort of the midst of the Motown era. Was that music that, you know, found its way to you as a young kid? Well, Motown music really didn't happen until I got to California. And that was kind of um, a good thing for me because I was lonely. I missed my friends in Detroit, you know, uh, and uh, the radio became my friend. And right at the time the radio became my friend, all those songs by uh, Motown artists started happening. And um, but when I lived in Detroit, my dad my dad was a bartender, you know, and he always was in the nightlife. And uh, you know they loved music. And I remember in the fifties, you know, the the hi-fi came out, and my parents got one, and they played albums all the time by you know Dinah Washington and Nat King Cole. And, the platters and the ink spots and you know they love that soulful kind of music and I I was always a little mimic I remember my mom said I used to sing only you by the platters verbatim sitting on the toilet at six years old the platters only Yeah, Mexican. Uh, he was. He's passed away now. Uh, but he was uh, born in Laredo, Texas, just on the other side of the border. His parents were from Monterrey. Okay. My mother was Greek, but she was born in Detroit. You know, it's a huge Greek population in Detroit. And what happened is when my dad was young, uh, his whole family uh, drove cross-country to uh, Detroit from Laredo. And... Uh, you know, they went up there for jobs. There was a lot of jobs in Detroit. Detroit was a seriously bustling city then. It was like a small New York, you know. And he went up there and got in the culinary industry. And my, my mom was growing up there. Um, her dad was, uh, he owned a Coney Island restaurant in Detroit, which is kind of a famous Greek-type hot dog joint. And, uh, yeah, they fell in love. And 
Made me. <laughs> Fabulous. And uh, moved out to Fremont, California when you were about 11, I think. And you and your brother Jack had a little incident in a retail store that would help shape your whole career. Yeah, we had the, the great idea that uh, we were going to try on these really cool T-shirts and uh, throw about three of them on and put our shirt over. We were on our way to the swimming pool at the Washington High School in Fremont. And, uh, you know, it was our first uh, our first endeavor in the crime career. We had a really short crime career. I got caught the first time. And, uh, you know, we, we walked out of the store. The manager was there. He called my dad. My dad came and got us, made us apologize to the guy, gave us a notebook and said, fill this with the reason why you're never going to steal again. And while you're in your bedroom, you guys need to think of something that's going to keep you out of trouble this summer or you're never coming out of that bedroom again. And um, the Beatles had just come out. And my friend around the corner who also got stealing with us, got caught stealing with us, uh, Jody Lopez, he had just gotten back from a vacation uh, in Mexico where he had gotten a guitar. And uh, we said, we want to play music, Dad. And he said, get in the car. And uh, took us to Allegro Music in Fremont. And all the instruments were on the wall. And uh, I remember I looked at the wall and I said, I want that. I want the saxophone. And my brother pointed to the drums. My brother was 10 months older than me. And I always tell people, you know, I'd like to tell you that we practiced our instruments for years and years and then joined a band. But we did it the opposite way. We started the band that day and then we learned how to play. And uh, we were in the uh, family room. Uh, Jody knew how to play the, the intro to Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison. The only part he knew. Down, 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 down. My brother's banging on the drum and I'm squeaking on the sax. My mom walked in and she said, they're going to be huge stars. And I've had a band ever since. You know, you're so identified with soul and, of course, Oakland soul. But go back to some of the early influences. I'm going to throw a couple names at you. Roger Collins and separately the Spiders. Well, uh, my biggest influence certainly was a group called the Spiders, and they weren't famous. They spelled their name S-P-Y-D-E-R-S. They were a white soul band, although they did have a six-foot-three-inch black female vocalist named Trudy Johnson, who came out in the middle of the show and kind of was like the featured star. But they had a guy named Dennis Delacqua that sang lead, and this kid was so soulful. He played the organ and he played alto sax, and he sang lead. This band was extremely tight. They had great background vocals, really well rehearsed. And, uh, you know, uh, just to show how soulful they were, people would drive from all over the Bay Area to come and see them play in the East Bay. Black people would walk in and just shake their heads. They couldn't believe how these white kids were so soulful. And uh, they kind of changed my life. Before that, I was playing rock and roll music. You know, I was playing you know, uh, the Stones and the Animals and Spencer Davis and stuff like that. But when I saw the Spiders, I hired a trumpet the next day because they had a horn section. And uh, Mick Gillette came in the band. And uh, I just became obsessed with soul music. And then one night, my dad came home late from work. And uh, the next morning uh, when I got up, uh, he said, I need you to go see this guy, Roger Collins. He said, I saw him last night. 
He's an incredible entertainer. And I said, Roger Collins, you know, by this time, I'm listening to Sly Stone on the radio, who was a very popular disc jockey in KSOL, KSOL Radio. And uh, there was this song called She's Looking Good. Uh, and he, you know, he was the guy that originally uh, recorded She's Looking Good. He had the, the best version. Wilson Pickett had a hit with it later, but we always, in the Bay Area, everybody like everybody like Roger Collins' version. see him at the uh, roll arena in San Leandro and man this guy was just the most incredible entertainer he used to wear shark skin suits and and he would have one sleeve cut in an angle just below the uh, elbow and the other sleeve a little lower kind of following the angle down <laughs> and he would uh, wear these big you know phony um glass jeweled cufflinks with wraparound chain links and in the middle of the show he'd take them off and throw them to the girls you know they'd go crazy and, and he was like he used to do imitations and I remember he would imitate Elvis Presley you know and back in that day this is in the late 60s you know or mid 60s um, you know to see a black man imitating Elvis Presley and just killing it you know it really amazed people, and he was just a really exciting entertainer. And uh, that that excitement thing in the live show is something that I wanted to do. And I also got that from Sly and the Family Stone. We used to watch them when we were young, and you know we really dug them as a band. But we didn't want to make our music be like theirs. We wanted our show to be exciting like theirs. And somewhere along the line, I know you and Rocco go all the way back, but somewhere along that line, you met the Doctor. Yeah, 1968, 4th uh, of July weekend. We're opening uh, at the Alameda County Fair for a pretty famous hippie soul band called The Loading Zone. They played the Fillmore West all the time. We were the opening act, and the Spiders had opened for The Loading Zone a week earlier and had kicked their butts at the Berryessa Bowl. And so we were opening that week for them. And we had, by this time, we had the same manager as the Spiders, and we were friends. And, and anyway, I saw that the Loading Zone had a B3, and I was used to playing a B3 at the After Hours Club that we played at, so I asked if I could borrow it. You know, And that wasn't really odd, because back then, it was hard to move those things around, you know. Uh, they didn't have the cut-down B3s like they do nowadays. And so I asked them, and they sent this their roadie over to uh, interview me to make sure I wasn't going to spill a Coke on it or nothing. And the roadie was Doc, Stephen Kupka. And he came up to me, and he says, uh, so have you ever played a B3 before? I go, yeah, and I play one every weekend at the After Hours Club, and you know, I know to be careful. I won't be spilling nothing on it. And he says, okay. He goes, uh kind of band you got? And I said, uh, I have a soul band. We were called the Motowns at the time. And I said, have you ever heard of the Spiders? He goes, yeah, I heard of the Spiders. Last week, they kicked our butts at Barry S. Ball. And I go, uh, well, we're kind of like the Spiders. We have the same manager. He goes, oh, you can use the organ. <laughs> and uh, 
after our show, he comes up to me and he says, uh, man, you got a nice band. I go, oh, thanks a lot. He goes, only one thing wrong. I go, yeah, what's that? He says, your horn section, it needs a little bottom. By the way, I play the baritone saxophone. And so I invited him to audition a week later. And uh, as soon as the guys heard that baritone, my dad walked in the kitchen and walked in from the kitchen into the garage. He said, Mimi, come in the kitchen. I need to talk to you. And I got in there. He said, hire this guy. He's got something. And uh, we hired him that day and uh, started writing shortly after that. And he was the one who really pushed you to get away from covers and write your own stuff? Yeah. You know, we used to do uh, obscure soul music. We we were not like the other bands. By that point, there were a lot of soul bands in East Bay. But most of them were playing the really popular soul songs that were on the radio, like Tighten Up and uh, Cool Jerk and stuff like that. And, you know, we, we would pick the, the obscure, really soulful songs from the albums and do them, and I would change them around. You know, I would change the rhythm. I was really, a, uh, I like to change rhythms. And my brother was a drummer, and I used to dictate weird beats to him. And then uh, by this point, I I knew how to play guitar and organ and sax, and so I'm showing Rocco how to play these bass lines, and I'm, you know, dictating to him how to really match up to the drummer, and then showing the guitar player, Jody, how to play sort of in and out of their rhythm to kind of make this rhythm fabric. And Doc came up to me one day and says, you know, what you're doing with these songs, it's amazing. He said, but why are we doing it to other people's songs? Why don't we write our own? And I don't know if I ever would have thought of that. You know, I was totally happy doing what I was doing. But I said, uh, we can try that, you know, and went over his house one night and uh, we wrote You're Still a Young Man. really withstood the test of time. Uh, I'd love to know where the name came from. I, you know, I've always, we all imagine, you know, where it might have come from, but tell us, where does the Tower of Power name come from? Well, like I said, we were called the Motowns when Doc joined, and Doc was the first hippie we ever met. And, you know, the tide was turning, you know, the whole hippie movement was taken over. Everybody was going their hair long and dressing in, you know, hippie-type clothes, and, you know, we were getting with the uh, times and uh, we wanted to get into the Fillmore West because, you know, by, because of Doc, we knew the people in the loading zone and they were, you know, they were playing the Fillmore West and really good gigs. And we were doing these sort of, you know, low class black nightclubs in the East Bay. And uh, we knew we'd never get in there with a name like the Motowns of wearing suits and all that, you know? So we, we decided we we're going to stop wearing suits and, grow our hair long, and but we needed one of those weird names, you know, like Frumius Bandersnatch or Lothar the Hand People. You know, they had all these weird names back then, Strawberry Alarm Clock. And uh, we were doing a little recording in Hayward, California, at this uh, place called Baytown Records. And we were on a break, and I was in the, the guy's office sitting at his desk. 
And there was a list of those weird band names. The guy just like wrote three pages of weird band names. And I'm looking at them, you know, I'm thinking, man, you know, none of these describe us, you know, and I'm looking and, and I saw the name Tower of Power. And I told the guys, I go, hey, what about Tower of Power? And they go, yeah, yeah, that describes us, you know. <laughs> and we became Tower of Power. Fantastic. And at that, around that time, I guess it's about, you know, right around 1970, who, who were you listening to? Who else really was starting to influence you? And I guess Doc obviously was with you, David Garibaldi, Rocco. Who, who was on your playlist then? Well, by 1970, uh, yeah, Garibaldi came in the band. And by then we were really, really digging into soul music. You know, we, we listened to uh, Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions, uh, you know, James Brown, of course, uh, a lot of Dyke and the Blazers and Howard Tate. Uh, Howard Tate uh, had a song called Stop. And a song called Ain't Nobody Home. And we used to play, like I say, his obscure ones. We did, I learned it all the hard way and Baby I Love You, and the Dyke and the Blazers, we used to do a, Let a Woman Be a Woman, Let a Man Be a Man. But, you know, we, we dug the funk and the soul, you know. Uh, we did a lot of stuff by uh, Daryl Banks, who used to have, um, uh, what was that song? The one we did was uh, Somebody Somewhere Needs You. And also uh, Tyrone Davis, you know, he had Can I Change My Mind, but we did a different one of his songs, you know. Uh, but we, we dug soul music. And uh, and then you got in the studio in 1970, first album, East Bay Grease. Yeah, we went in the studio with a guy named David Rubinson. And, uh, you know, we had no uh, recording skills because we really hadn't been in the studio. You know, I had recorded when I was 16. That was a one-day process where I learned very little. <laughs> and... Uh, and then Rubinson had taken us in to try to record about a month earlier, two months earlier, and uh, he didn't like my, the way my brother played drums or the way the guitar player played, and he was going to bring in some studio guys, and that almost broke up the band, but finally my brother said, I want you to stay with the band, and uh, I don't want you to miss out on this opportunity, and he went back to Detroit, because my parents had moved back by then. And... Uh, once we got Garibaldi and Willie James Fulton on guitar, everybody you know in the band was really hot, and the, the producer uh, Dave Rubinson had no problem with that. And he took us in, and we recorded that whole record like in two weeks. It was done. And then your singer was Rufus Miller. It was, but we were having problems with him because uh, you know he had he smoked a lot and did a lot of cocaine, and he got nodes on his throat because he really sang with a gravelly voice. So he kind of shredded his vocal cords. He had these notes, had to have an operation. And by then, we knew Willie Fulton and Rick, uh, Rick Stevens from this band called Stuff. And we started using Rick to sub for uh, Rufus while he was in the hospital and then when he was recovering. And his recovery took a long time because he didn't take care of himself. So Rick was sort of, you know, coming into the band. And uh, But on that first record, Rufus sang the funk tunes and Rick sang Sparkly in the Sand because we actually fired Rufus the day before the recording. and But then Rick wasn't really doing the funk tunes that good. And the producer said, no, you got to hire Rufus back. And so we did. And uh, 
after the record came out, Sparkling in the Sand really was the big hit. But the whole record was really a hit regionally, you know. And uh, But then Rufus, he just sort of went more left, and we finally got rid of him. And, and by that point, Rick stepped up and really uh, brought it with the funk tunes as well. And uh, he became the lead vocalist. You also have worked, and I want to talk about, you know, all the alumni that have come through the band and and still go and step up your latest album in 2020. Um, but talk about some of the great acts who you guys played with. I mean, the list over your career is incredible, from John Lee Hooker to Rod Stewart to you know, the Grateful Dead, when you look back at all the, you know, folks you've worked with, you know, what makes you smile the most? Um, well, what makes me smile the most, I would have to say, uh, our work with Little Feet and our work with Huey Lewis and the News, um, because we, we did more time with them. You know, we did most of Little Feet's records and then we recorded their live album, uh, which was their biggest hit, which put them on the cover of People magazine. huge part of that project and then uh, Huey Lewis in the News we played on several of their albums and we toured with them for almost four years you know and uh, so I would say you know they we spent the most time with those guys but we did some great sessions I mean we did uh, Aaron Neville and Linda Ronstead when, when something's wrong with my baby that was a Grammy winner we did Caribou by Elton John. We did, uh, you know, our first, one of our very first sessions was with Santana, Everybody's Everything. And we did more recording with Santana over the years. And um, just, a, a, you know, a lot of great recordings with many great artists over the years. We worked with George Martin as a record producer when he did uh, the movie Sgt. Pepper. We did all those horns. And then he produced America and we played on that. Uh, we, you know, late, lately in later years, we played with uh, P. Diddy and uh, Neil Diamond and, uh, you know, we've done gospel records and Pure Prairie League and Warrant and Poison and, uh, you know, Sammy Hagar. <laughs> and, and you guys are, having seen you play live many, many times, you guys are so tight. And does that go back to, you know, you talked about the spiders and just what you saw you know, going to see Sly and the Family Stone, yeah. the Spiders, other acts that you saw. Is that with that, you know, commitment to, because you guys must rehearse a ton. I mean, you know, that doesn't just doesn't happen by itself. Yes. I mean, that was definitely inspired by the Spiders. They were extremely tight. That's what really separated them out from the other bands. And I, when I say tight, I don't mean just, you know, uh, just the rhythm section or just the horns. They're, they're vocals were impeccable. Their horn section was impeccably arranged. Their rhythm section, all the little parts, uh, their show, uh, everything that they did, they had these cues where they would stop at a certain time and, you know, these sort of things that would surprise the audience and uh, or, or excite the audience or, you know, break it down and bring it to a real emotional level. And everything was very organized and very tight. And I wanted my band to have that. And, and you sure do. I just watched uh, on YouTube Saturday morning the uh, your NPR Tiny Desk 
uh, gig. Well, yeah. And e- even there in that little tiny space, you've got that choreography going. Yeah, that's that's a hard gig to do because they make you play really soft. And, yeah. you know, we're there, we're barely blowing on our horns and they're going, it's still too loud. They're like, really? <laughs> we pulled it off pretty good. That's great. So you've had over the years, it's an incredible alumni network. Uh, and uh, I love what you did last week while we're all, you know, become isolation nation. And you brought, you and Brent Carter, I guess, organized it, bringing back six of the legendary Tower Power singers to do a, a special version of What is Hip. Yeah. Who came up with that idea? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I can take no credit for that at all. That's all Brent Carter's idea. And he had already reached out to those other singers before he contacted me. And uh, he contacted me, he said, I'm, he goes, I think it would be great if you introduce it like you do when you're on stage, only this time say social distancing style, you know. Come on, everybody. It's time to ask the ultimate eternal question, social distancing style. What is hip? Big Green. Larry Bragg. Me. Tommy Bolton. I had been doing a bunch of little videos and stuff for my publicist, you know, for different people. And I said, sure, I, I can do that, you know. And uh, and then he said, and then at the end, you know, just like he used to do at the gig all the time, we are Tower of Power. I go, yeah, all right, you know. We are Tower of Power. But that was all Brent's idea, and he did a great job. It took him a couple of weeks to do all the editing. With the, a, a guy named Adam uh, did all that stuff for him, you know. But it was his idea, and it was a great idea, and we were very grateful to him for doing it. Talk about uh, one of your great influences and one of my favorite songs that we always hope you'll do uh, whenever we see you live, which is Digging on James Brown. Talk about his influence and what he means to you? Well, I mean, if you're a soul band, you know, James Brown is the king, (laughs) you know. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like a a sex machine, man. Moving, doing it, you know. Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. People make the mistake of calling us a funk band. And and don't get me wrong, we are a funk band. We play funk music and we play it very well. But it's a small segment of what I call soul music. Because soul music not only has funk, it has, you know, uh, ring your heart out like a rag, slow love song, you know, ballads. It has finger pop and shuffles. It has all different sorts of there's different types of soul music, you know, but certainly funk is a is a big part of that. And, and James Brown is number one on that list. And uh, I was writing some songs with a guy named Ken Kessie, who did a lot of the uh, work for En uh, Vogue and a lot of that stuff that came out of Oakland in the 90s. Um, and he, he said, you know, I want to write a song with you. And I said, uh, yeah, all right, you know. And in those days, you know, there was like, we were using a lot of machines and stuff. And I said, well, send me some beats, you know. 
And he goes, well, what do you mean some beats? And I go, you know, I'll send me a clever beat and I'll see what I can put to it. And he sent me some of these beats that were really boring, you know. And I said, I mean, you got to send me something more interesting. He goes, well, what do you mean? I go, you know, something like James Brown, like 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 popcorn. You know, he goes, popcorn? He's P-O-P-C. I go, yeah, popcorn by James Brown. And he listened to some of... Uh, James Brown songs, and he made this beat, and he sent it to me. I go, yeah, I can do something with this. And then I took it to Doc, and I said, you know, uh, I got this this groove and these chord changes, and I want to write a song uh, James Brown style. So I need like a three-word title and then, you know, some clever things to say, and I'll, I'll, I'll put it to the track. And he goes, okay, you know, and then a couple of days later, we're on a bus going to a gig, and he goes, oh, I wrote those lyrics out. And he gives them to him. And he goes, I still be digging on James Brown. I go, no, I didn't. I didn't say. I said I wanted to write a song like a James Brown song, not I dig James Brown. But then I started reading the lyrics, and they were really crafty and clever. And I figured out a way to sing them to the track. And uh, I remember I took it to my manager, Michelle Zarin, at the time. I go, you got to hear this because. Uh, I went to Ken Kessie and he put my vocal on it, you know. And every time it ended, I went, I'll still be digging on James Brown. She would start laughing, you know. And we just thought, this is great, you know. So that's how that song came to be. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a great song. So you travel with the band now. You said give or take 200 dates a year. And you're seemingly almost always working. We're always looking to see where you are when you're coming to the New York area. But you also travel all over the world, and you get a tremendous response and fans in Europe and other places. Is there a place, Emilio, that you really love to travel to that you and the band really enjoy? Well, we love Europe, and um, I mean all over Europe. I love Germany and uh, you know Copenhagen, uh, one of my favorite places. Uh, one of my favorite gigs in Europe is in this little college town called Aarhus, Denmark. We played this uh, gig at this huge nightclub called The Train, and it's all kids. You know, they're all like around 16 to 20, you know, and they know all the words and everything, you know. And we have a lot of fun there in Europe. We, we enjoy playing uh, the UK. Uh, we play in France. Uh, of course, we love the south of Europe. Um, but we play Japan, and Japan, we have great fans in Tokyo and Osaka and uh, Fukuoka and Nagoya and Sapporo. And recently, we've been down to Australia, and we're starting to do a lot better down there. And they're starving for us down there. They've been wanting us to come for a long time, but, you know, it's very expensive to go there. And, uh, but we went down there and did the Dave Cos cruise, and we did two of his cruises. We started out. And then we, we did some gigs, and then he came around again, and we did his cruise again. So that made it easy for us to go there and play some gigs, and those fans loved it. You know, We played New Zealand. Uh, we, we do really well in Korea now, and Korea is a great place to go. They, they, uh, that's become such a technolo technologically um, cutting-edge uh, city to go to, and we love it. Yeah. Fantastic. And walk us through a day. I mean, you have a gig, you know, it's, I know it's, uh, it's closed now, but we used to go see you all the time at BB King's in New York. And when you guys have a gig, do you, are you just regular tourists during the day? I mean, by now you probably have friends everywhere, but I always wonder, you know, until you come on stage, you know, eight, nine o'clock during the day, is it, 
is there a, a getting psyched up for the gig? Is it old hat at this point? Um, you know, we obviously, you know, we were very fortunate that we get to travel all over the world and we go to these great cities. And so, you know, uh, for me, I mean, I got a regimen, you know, I get up in the morning, I study the word of God for a couple of hours, I do some exercise and then I hit the road, you know, I go walking and see where I'm at and see what's to see. Sometimes uh, I'm in a place where there's, uh, you know, uh, friends that I've made in the past and we'll get together and uh, maybe uh, do lunch or if there are people in recovery, we'll go catch a 12-step meeting together, uh, you know, so we just enjoy the day and then usually around four o'clock. Uh, you know, or 4.30, it's time to either walk to the gig or hop in a van or a bus and go to the gig. We do a sound check. Uh, they have to feed us there, so we get a nice dinner and uh, and then hang out and laugh and talk with the guys and go on and do the gig and head back to the hotel. And tell us about your latest album, uh, Step Up. Uh, and I know you did your first video in, I think, three decades, Look In My Eyes. So tell us about that. Well, the album Step Up, we actually cut it at the same time that we cut Soul Side of Town. We did uh, 28 all-new original tracks, and we turned it into two albums. So we knew that we were going to put it out in 2020. We wanted to wait until uh, the new decade. And, uh, you know, Soul Side of Town was really successful for us. It went number one on Billboard jazz charts, and uh, we made the R&B charts. And the same with this one. came out in the first week, number one on the Billboard jazz charts, number five on the R&B charts. And uh, we're getting a lot of, uh, you know, attention, uh, a lot of people really making some positive comments. It, it's, uh, it's doing well, you know, and uh, the record company asked us to do a video. I was kind of surprised, but uh, came out really good. The song is called Look In My Eyes. It's a song written by Rocco Prestia and a guy named Tom Schumann, who plays keyboards for Spyro Gyra. And... Uh, on the uh, song, I sing, and uh, it wasn't a song that I would ever choose to sing. It had some jazz scatting in it, and uh, that's not my forte. But uh, we did these recordings with a guy named Joe Vanelli. You know, I I had cut, uh, I think it was 18 tracks by myself with the guys. And then uh, Joe uh, said, you know, I'd like you to come and try a couple tracks with me at my studio. He's married to my business manager and Diane said, you know, Joe really wants to have you guys in. And I was having a hard time getting into the studio where I was working. So I said, all right. And we went in and as soon as I started working with him, I saw well, number one, what a great musician he is, what a great engineer he is and how creative he is. And also the thing that really appealed to me is he's extremely meticulous. And I like that in, uh, in the studio. And so we did a couple of tracks. I really enjoyed working with him. And he said, you want to do some more? And I said, yeah. And I came back. We did a couple more. And then I told him, he was taking me to the airport. I said, you know, I'm trying to do the best record of my career. We're at 50 years is coming up. And, you know, we don't want to just put out an album. So I want to do 25 tracks, you know, and uh, really pick out the best. And, he's, and he says, wow, that's a big project. I go, yeah, I'm wondering, would you help me finish it? Because by this point, I realized it was going to take me 50 years to finish this thing. And you know, I was doing it between tours. And he goes, yeah, sure. And we wound up doing 28 tracks. And it all came out so good that the record company wanted to put it all out at once. And uh, we said, no, we want to do one for the 50th and then save the next one for later. And uh, so we did that. And uh, now we got this video out. And... Uh, Things are going well. That's fantastic. 
Uh, and let's talk a little bit about the current members of the band and, and some of the past members. You've got that core group of you and Doc, of course, David Garibaldi and, and Rocco, who have been there pretty much since the beginning. I guess David was had a couple years when he was out of the band. With, uh, I know there was an accident at some point. Um, and so many of the other members have been with you for a long time. Adolfo has been there 20 years. Uh, Roger's been there a long time. And you've also got this incredible alumni. I think it's something like 60-some-odd musicians, mostly horn players, who have come in and out of the band. That's an unbelievable group of alumni you've got. We do have some uh, really great alumni. We've got a lot of members. People ask me how many, and I have no idea. I've lost count years ago. Uh, I was going to say David Garibaldi was actually uh, out of the band four different times. He's been in the band four times. uh, the last time he was out of the band, he was out 18 years and came back in 98. And, uh, you know, we were different people by then and uh, living right. And uh, he felt very comfortable. And uh, I doubt he's ever going to leave at this point. You know, we uh, we speak the same language and we agree on things. And uh, Rocco, unfortunately, is no longer with us. I had to take him off the road for health reasons uh, at the end of last year. And so Mark VW, uh, who was in the train accident with David uh, a couple of years ago, uh, he had been subbing for Rocco for 13 years already. And, uh, you know, Rocco's had his health issues over the years. And so now he's a permanent member. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. You know, even what we would, people would call the new guys, you know, uh, have been here for years, you know, longer than most bands last these days. We got, a, we got a strong lineage here at Tower of Power. Fantastic. And Amelia, when you look ahead, I mean, eventually this whole Corona thing will, you know, pass through, God willing, and we'll be back to doing all the things that we love. What's out there that you think about that you haven't done that's still on your list? You know, I'd like to record more with uh, other artists, uh, with Tower of Power as, you know, kind of collaborations, you know. Uh, I'd like to have a song uh, in a movie that's, uh, you know, a huge song in a movie and possibly get an Oscar. I'd like to get a Grammy. I'd like to be in the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I want to push the envelope globally, you know, uh, playing live. We have never played South America. And uh, before it's all done, I'm hoping to conquer South America. (laughs) Well, Emilio, this was fantastic. Is there anything else going on at present or that's planned that you want to touch on? Or did we cover it all off uh, no there is one more thing we did a big gig in Oakland uh, at the Fox Theater celebrating 50 years uh, in 2018 <laughs> And we're just uh, finishing up uh, the mixing for this uh, 50-year anniversary DVD documentary. There's 22 songs, and we've mixed 13 of them. And the video editing has already started, so we're going to be finalizing that as soon as we can, as soon as things clear up with this pandemic, and then uh, put some documentary material in there, and uh, we'll have that DVD documentary out. Great. Well, it, it is, you know, every time we see you and, and we've been there for a lot of the anniversaries, but when you were on stage and 
you know, talking about 50 years with, you know, Doc and, and everything going on. It's just absolutely magical. And the way you command the stage and connect to the audience and, you know, you never, you guys seem to never have an off night. And it's just an absolute joy to see you every time we get the chance. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy. 